Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Kani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a professor at the Pontificia Universidad Católica de Valparaíso and the former environmental minister of Chile from 2014 to 2018. As minister, he spearheaded multiple international environmental initiatives including helping craft a landmark agreement to phase out coal power generation, South America's first carbon taxes for power generation and new car sales, creating 45,000 square kilometers of national parks and protecting 1.3 million square kilometers of ocean. Previously, he was a practice manager at the World Bank where he led the team that created the Coalition for Finance Ministers for Climate Action. He's a biochemical engineer and holds MS and PhD degrees in environmental engineering from the University of Iowa, focusing his research on estimating the externalities of biofuels, power generation, transportation, and residential heating. He has used his research to advocate for renewable energy and push for more stringent regulations to stop dirty coal power generation in Chile. He is currently the CEO of the newly founded Global Methane Hub, a global alliance of more than 20 leading philanthropies and organizations committed to reducing global methane emissions by more than 30. 30% by the year 2030. I'm excited to welcome our guest Dr. Marcelo Mina. Our interviewer today is a science writer at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the US. She reports on the directorate's work to make fusion energy a viable power source. She has also worked for the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility where she wrote about scientific research made possible through high performance computing. Before coming to the Oak Ridge National Lab, she worked as a science journalist and communications consultant for both the private sector and the non-profit organizations in Latin America, Europe, and the United States. Some of the working experiences that have shaped her career include Scientific American, the National Audubon Society, the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, and the University of Tennessee Knoxville. I'm excited to welcome our interviewer, Andrea Schneibel. Welcome to the show, Marcelo and Andrea. Thank you so much, Shahzad, and welcome, Marcelo. Thank you for the invitation. So, you have a stellar career spanning research, policy, and advocacy. It's actually quite impressive. Can you tell us a little bit more about your journey across these diverse domains? I remember when I was probably around 13 years old, in which I decided that while social issues are are always important to address,、uh, but there's not a lot of consensus politically. On how to address this, I thought that it would be best for me to spend my time protecting people's rights and the environment through environmental issues. And I started this early on. I decided to set myself to that and start working on the issues that I thought were important for my community. There's, you know, illegal dumps near my house. There's a polluted wastewater where I used to go to school. There's smelter that would send its pollution. Near my school, every once in a while, and we'd have to go indoors, and so all these things really told me that I needed to really dedicate myself to this, and I needed to train myself to this, and I needed to really improve to make the biggest impact I could in the period that I had to participate. In Kosi Johnson's、uh, phrase, he was a child that died of HIV, which he got as he was born. What he said was, "You you need to do what you can wherever you are in the time you have," and that's what I've been really trying to do. Whenever I have a position, I try to make the biggest impact I can, whether it be on research, whether it be on activism, whether it be on policy. 
that's pretty actually incredible. You have already sort of told us a little bit about these challenges, but can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is the situation right now in Chile regarding air quality and climate change? What are some of the most pressing challenges that not only your community, but the whole country is actually facing? So it's important to start to measure uh, to recognize a problem. And I, I understand that there is a big gap in measurements to many locations. And once you start measuring, you start taking action. And so the same way that almost 30 years ago, people started measuring air pollution in Santiago, which has led to roughly 75% reduction of pollution. The same has also occurred in regions more recently, including India or China, in which the recognition of a problem is a start of clean air. So there's an increasing understanding and consensus that dirty fuels are the culprits of air pollution issues in most regions. And the global north sometimes looks at climate as a solution that's solved with global north focus. You know, understanding that everybody drives and electricity is everywhere, plentiful, and you need to do solutions, including solar panels and electric vehicles. But the reality is in developing countries, clean energy access is very low. And there's a lack of awareness from the global north that we face the fact that many people have to collect their fuel for cooking or for heating. And this also happens in places like Chile. So I just like to summarize the problems and air quality in Chile, which would be in the northern part, a lot of power plant and mining pollution, not so much related to cooking, but mostly dirty fuels like like coal and how we extract our minerals. In the central region, we have a mix of urban emissions with transportation, but also there's a substantial contribution from industry and from residential sources. And the south of Chile, where the worst pollution is, it's actually in places that people have seldom heard of, but it's about dirty fuels. It's about wood burning. It's about the increasing cost of heating and the low insulation that exists in homes. And this actually brings the air to be quite dangerous for most of the day in the winter. This is a very much a seasonal issue that has to do with uh, clean energy access and clean heating overall. I find very interesting that you mentioned mining because Chile is actually big in mining, right? Do you see this to be a contentious point of discussion within your own country saying we have to pay attention to how we do this in order to preserve a good quality environment for generations to come? And have you found any resistance to that idea? For example, the power sector, which is related to the mining requirements, has done uh, substantial shifts in reducing their local pollution. And there's a, an agreement to phase out coal generation by 2040 and it probably uh, pointing to 2030. So there is a uh, progress in that. The smelters themselves have had a problem in the sense that there's been a substantial progress, 90, 95% reduction of sulfur dioxide emissions being reduced, but with laggards in the state-owned smelters. So this causes uh, many places in northern and central Chile to have uh, high sulfur dioxide concentrations, which are very unusual globally. And this sulfur dioxide is associated to acute health effects, particularly on people who are vulnerable to respiratory disease. And so therefore, there is a special treatment that has been given to the state-owned smelters that has changed recently with President Boric, for example, announcing the shutdown of one of the most polluting smelters overall. But that only resolves part of the problem. The fact is we need to have smelters to provide added value to 
our products. We could either choose to export the copper as a copper concentrates that are smelted elsewhere, probably in China, or if we export the finished product with smelters. And we really have to invest in these smelters to add the value. But these smelters need to be clean and need to be to the OECD status of the country that we are. And we still have to do a lot more on that. So that's a little bit of the very specific conflict that exists in coastal and cities in Chile, because many times this copper concentrate or ore is actually deposited on the coast where it's windblown dusk actually increases the exposure of heavy metals to the population nearby. So we've had that very specific conflict in which it's very unique because there's not a lot of places that have these very large deposits of copper near coast. And so therefore, this is a very specific conflict that many governments have tried to tackle with some improvement, of course, but not enough to keep the people happy. Makes sense. And it seems also that there has been some awareness and interest around gathering solutions, both from government and private sector and people working all together. Did you think that this is a trend that will continue, all this public awareness and interest around air pollution? And how has it changed throughout your career? I mean, was it easier to talk about this, you know, 20 years ago than it is now? Or how do you see this? I mean, for example, the specific conflicts regarding air pollution in the industrial locations, it's difficult for people not to really blame what they see as a visible source, but sometimes the story isn't as clean. And it's really important that we have the correct assessment of what needs to be done. So when we implement the correct solutions, sometimes there are other issues that we also need to address to make the following steps. So for example, in cities like Tocopilla, which is an industrial town and which coal power was really important. Once we started putting in emission controls, the air pollution dropped in around 80%, sulfur dioxide, particulate matter. And so there's a lot of progress. But now as the air is cleaner, and if you want to adopt WHO standards, which are even more stringent, then you have to do other things. And then it gets into the transportation, the heating, even in a northern mining town like that. In the case of Santiago, there's been another dynamic that has really shaped the way in which Chileans approach the environment. And since 1990, roughly, there's been an awareness that you can't do whatever you want in city of Santiago because uh, when it's bad dispersion rates, there's limitations to what you could do. So the progression was to ban open chimneys, for example, early on, or banning the use of cars that don't have emission controls, which in 1990 was considered to be the catalytic converter cars. And so industry got increasingly clean, and there's a lot of progress that was done all the way up to probably 2005, in which around 60% of the pollution was reduced. But that didn't change the fact that we needed to adopt a new air pollution standard So in the old standard, we almost have no bad air days, but we adopted the PM 2.5 standard, which actually increased the frequency of our air quality episodes. And that brought a revamp of what we needed to do. In 2017, we approved the new pollution attainment program. Every year that passes, it's the cleanest year ever, which is really important, but still it's not enough. We have now exempted only Euro 5 diesel vehicles from a permanent ban on driving in the wintertime. And so therefore that has uh, really helped overhaul the fleet of 
with cars and make it cleaner. And we've had increasing emission controls in the buses, starting from adopting Euro standards, Euro 3, with particulate filters early on, almost 15 years ago, up to having electric buses today. And we started banning open burning in the winter months. Now it's going to be all months. And finally, on the chimneys, we have a permanent ban on all wood-burning stoves in Santiago, which is a substantial progress. So this is a different dynamic, and people were willing to do more because there's an acknowledgement that while progress had been taken, we needed to really take additional steps. So now we're doing much more frequent updates of the air pollution control programs because while we made the progress that I've said, you know, 75% reduction of annual PM 2.5 averages, we still need to reduce another 80% so we have really clean air. Yes, and it definitely seems like none of these could have been possible without actually having people engaged. And that is a very, very exciting thing to hear. So tell me a little bit about your transition working as a researcher and then going into policymaking. I find it very interesting. What made you feel that research was not quite enough and that you actually had to join the ranks of people wanting to make things happen. In 2008, I was hired to be a air quality advisor for the government, but it seemed to be then that they didn't have a genuine interest in really taking that advice, but actually wanted to get that position to be sort of like a scapegoat of whatever happened that was related to air pollution. So I sort of escaped that trap and decided to do more directly policy-related research. And so I started looking at the air quality modeling and showing, for example, that we could actually predict the air pollution in Santiago with my colleagues. Pablo Saide from UCLA now. And we've started showing that to prevent air pollution episodes, we needed to take measures not from one day to another because the air pollution episode was the accumulation of multiple days of bad dispersion. And so therefore we needed more structural measures or more permanent measures. And we needed to take measures in advance to prevent this episodes to occur. My former advisor, Greg Carmichael, inspired me in that vision saying that we can't change the weather, but we can change emissions and therefore we can prevent episodes. And so that tool was very useful because many of the policymakers had lost their jobs really because the air pollution model wasn't able to prevent air pollution episodes. And now we had more solid science to really guide how we should decide on these things. And so I started getting involved in political campaigns in terms of the government programs. And then I was selected to become vice minister of the environment. Of course, I came in right away with the air pollution system that we had been developing for almost a decade. We implemented it. It's the official model for Santiago, but also all cities down the region. There's a couple of papers we've done on that. And these have really been instrumental in reducing the air pollution. If you look at the concentrations of uh, the air pollution measures that we've taken, the annual averages have dropped from between 25 to almost 50% since 2013. So this has also resulted in a large drop in, in respiratory disease and emergency room visits. I had been working on the estimation of externalities and looking at how many lives would be saved in my research. And it was really great to see that what we thought was going to happen actually manifested in the drops in emergency room visits. There's around 500,000 fewer cases of emergency room visits due to respiratory disease now, which is around a 17% drop nationally. And that's actually 
really important because we've done this together and we've done this based on science. That helped me design some of the carbon taxes and pollution taxes that we've established. So the same way that we're able to predict our air pollution where it's going to be, we're also going to be able to estimate what damage it was causing. And so it was natural for us to estimate emission taxes based on the externalities. And I was a very much an enemy of diesel emissions before the diesel gate scandal came out. We all knew that this was a problem. We didn't know it was fraudulent in nature, but we needed to address it. So we designed actually some emission taxes for new cars that actually have allowed the implementation of cleaner standards by the car manufacturers because they just don't want their cars to be sold at a higher tax rate. So all these things highlight the fact that we have to have science-based policy. And this tradition continues because the current Minister of Environment for Chile is also a scientist. And I think it's really great that we have this tradition of science-based policy. Otherwise, it's all just posturing in politics. Yes, and it definitely permeates right into other areas, as you were just explaining. Many of these uh, science-based decisions have impacts also for other areas, like public health, for example, are very tightly related. So that is great. And, and I know that you're a big proponent of an ecological constitution, and I'm guessing that's also part of this big engagement you have with science-based policymaking. But can you explain a little bit exactly what an ecological constitution means? And do you see this as an actual possibility for Chile and perhaps other countries in the coming years or decades? So I'll refer to William McDonough's definition of sustainability, which is loving the child of every species forever. And the thing is, Sustainability needs to be inspired by inclusion, by consensus, by thinking of our differences and actually really celebrating those differences. And I think our recent constitutional process lost an opportunity to really build a house for all of us to live in. And actually, the problem with that is that the constitutional convention was chosen. Many people that had many local conflicts that they wanted to address and many very justifiable positions on many issues. And myself and a group of professors and former ministers put together a decalogue of a green constitution, which included the principles that we thought would be interesting to really stop the cycle of being limited on some action because of the current constitution that was enacted under Pinochet's regime. And so we started with simple concepts, and many of these were in the proposal that was voted down. We don't give up. We believe that these are the elements that actually caused more sport, and but we have to keep it simple. And so therefore, principles like intergenerational justice or climate justice or transparency on environmental information or public participation or the duty of government to protect citizens from biodiversity loss or from climate change or protecting water rights and the necessity of providing water for ecosystem services, all these things are things that have a lot of support. And so hopefully this next process includes what we can learn from this previous failure in which we didn't think about the rest of the people. And so the thing is, what happens here is that a constitution should be able to house all types of government systems. And today's constitution limits the role of the public sector in many aspects. So the revenge from that constitution is actually not to have a revenge. It's actually to include more people instead of reciprocally excluding the sectors that were put together, the previous constitution. I think that's going to be a much more bigger inspiration to inspire this new process out of our love for our country and for our citizens and our differences instead of trying to impose a vision on the rest of the people. 
I understand and I know that a constitution is obviously the foundational block of the law of any nation. While you deal with this flow, do you see any other paths to sort of make these proposals a reality in Chile's laws to see if you can still guarantee those even if they're not present right now in the current constitution? Yeah, I mean, for example, the process itself put pressure on some laws that were long delayed to be approved. And so, for example, the human right to water or access to water or to sustained ecosystems today is still part of the Constitution. Or the public participation, transparency, and environmental justice provisions are part of the Escazú Agreement, which we proposed during Bachelet's government and which President Piñera decided to not ratify. President Boric, a week into government, decides to ratify this agreement. And so many of these things are already included. But the problem is, how do we ponder activities with others? And for example, today, if we tried to ban the use of coal at a certain date, or if we wanted to phase out the sale of internal combustion engines, this wouldn't be legal because it would be pondered against the rights to free enterprise and other things. And so since we don't have climate change in our constitution and the importance of looking in the long term, then we are faced with these short term decisions that actually undermine the capacity of our country to develop in the long term because of the threat of climate change and biodiversity loss. So I think what we will continue to do these next years is to inform the different constitutional convention that we need to make progress on this, that this is something that will a lot of Chileans agree on. We have state policy on climate change, on energy policy. And while government could come in and have a more active role on the public sector or private sector, whether you're a right wing or left wing government, there is a reality and a roadmap that we understand that we need to build together. It's our common commitment to reach net zero by 2050 and have as much renewable energy as we can by 2035. And so this is something that I think will inspire our work together. And I think in many aspects, our energy policy, our climate policy, our biodiversity policy are things that bring the Chileans together and do not separate them. Seems to me that Chile is making big strides toward these, but how do you see the situation in the region as a whole in Latin America and the global South? So I think we have to celebrate our wins in the sense that, you know, we need to recognize that overall in the world, we are making progress on climate. And this is an absolute truth. The problem is it's not enough. We need to do much more. Every year, we're going to come out with a press release saying we've done much more than ever on climate. But every year, we should also accompany it with we need to do much more. We're not doing enough. And so Chile, yeah, along with Costa Rica, uh, with the UK and the EU, have gotten at least passing grades on their long-term mitigation strategies, according to Climate Action Tracker. But we need to do a lot more in the short term. And that's something that we need to overcome in the sense that we are always in the cycle of short-term decisions, subsidizing fossil fuels many times. In the case of Ecuador, in the case of Chile, in the case of Venezuela, these are things that we need to really understand that we can't subsidize. There's section of our future. We need to accompany this with other more smart versions to really lower the cost of living, but also understanding that this dependency on fossil fuels is what's leading to the increase in food prices and climate change. So I think in the Latin American region, which is not a big emitter, we do have a lot of opportunities for innovation. And Colombia, for example, has done a lot on their long-term mitigation policy. Costa Rica has also done a lot. And I would say Uruguay has a really great policy. We need to see much more from Argentina, from Brazil. I think Mexico needs to recover its efforts on climate change, on leadership on this. 
There is this tendency on the left wing, and which I am a part of, to blame other countries, but it seems to be a very comfortable position that really goes against the fact that many of the most critical left wing governments in Latin America are also very fossil fuel dependent in exports. And therefore, this is really something that we need to address. So that's a little bit of what I think of the region must be doing. And we're particularly more vulnerable than the rest of the regions on climate change. So we need to be doing a lot more on adaptation and resilience. And that also there's a necessity again of building social protection systems that will help us become more resilient to the inevitable climate shocks we'll face these coming decades. What can we normal everyday citizens do to help? So every day we choose our transportation. And for example, our way to decide on transportation has a big impact on our footprint, but also on what we eat. Every day, we decide how much we want to contribute to climate change. And while food is very cultural, food is very important and personal. The type of food that we choose also highlights the society and what we want. And so therefore, I'm not saying that we shouldn't eat meat at all or things like that. But I am clearly saying that if we eat meat every day, it's not good for us nor for the planet, right? So this is something that we need to balance out and something that's not necessarily expensive, just become more sensitive. Food waste is an issue that is also really important that we're working on a lot. I recently did some analysis. If you compost your food, actually, it's probably more important on climate than actually not driving. A family of five versus that is actually twice as emission effective in reducing emissions. So these things we need to put at the forefront. Maybe set the temperature of your fridge to a lower temperature. The increased energy costs will maybe cause more emissions, but the reduced probability of your food being wasted and spoiled is actually more important. And so therefore, food waste is going to be a really important one. We all want to order out on the weekend and maybe eat something nice, but there's some leftovers that if they reach that landfill, they're going to be causing climate change. So it actually extends the impact of food on the climate if we don't even eat it, right? So therefore, there's a lot of things that we could do. A lot of them are not really expensive. We don't choose where we live, our car every day, but we do choose how much we want to waste on food, for example. These are all very interesting and fascinating tips. Thank you so much for those. So let me switch gears here a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit about your work with the Global Methane Hub. So there has been a lot of recent interest in reducing methane emissions. Can you tell me and our listeners, why is this so important for the climate discourse? So as time passes, as we take less action, we need to do more to prevent 1.5 degrees from being exceeded. And for many years, we have acknowledged that there's these short-lived climate pollutants like black carbon, HFCs, and methane that contribute to warming in the short term. When we want to ponder what the impact is of these pollutants versus CO2, CO2 has a long atmospheric lifetime, over 100 years, and methane only has maybe around 12 years, and black carbon maybe a couple months or weeks. And so the way that we really need to assess that impact in the short term as a distinct pathway, what we've seen is that methane is probably the most effective way to reduce warming within our lifetime. While we acknowledge and we need to reduce CO2 emissions, this will manifest in reductions towards the end of the century of the temperature. On the other hand, if we reduce methane this decade, you know, the methane pledge was launched at COP26. If we do a reduction by 30% by 2030, this means that if we continue by 40% by 2040, we may reduce our temperatures 0.2 degrees. 
in that period. And that's going to be around three times more than what we reduced if everybody in the world meets their net zero goals. So we need to do both run a sprint on methane mitigation. At the same time, we're running the marathon on CO2 mitigation. So tell me actually a little bit more about the hub itself and what your role is in it. I know that the Global Methane Hub is actually based in the Global South, which is a very exciting thing to see. Tell me a little bit more about the actual hub. So the major philanthropies in the world on climate have issues that they think are important to be addressed and they work together and they put together what are called regranters. Basically, they give us funding and we fund different NGOs and governments. So we are funded by all the major climate philanthropies, including High Tide Foundation, Hewlett, uh, IKEA, SIF, MacArthur, Sequoia, etc. And all of them put us a mandate to help reduce emissions substantially from methane. So there's a couple of sources that are really important that we need to consider. Around 40% of methane emissions come from oil and gas leaks in the extraction. And the manifestation that was recently shown was the Nord Stream leak of methane, which is the largest registered methane leak ever, but also coal mine leak. And so therefore, we have a lot of work that we're implementing on reducing these oil flares and leaking and are supporting working with the private sector and the public sector and satellite providers to really track these emission reductions. On the food sector, we're working on developing more measures to reduce emissions and working with R&D to mitigate methane by feeding animals methane inhibitors that actually block the formation of methanogenic bacteria. Methane is actually an energy issue for like a cow. So if we're able to transform the belch methane into more meat and milk, then we find the sweet spot in which these inhibitors actually could improve the productivity of animal production. And that's something that we need to really be looking into. Or maybe supporting the work of highlighting the benefits of a healthier diet with a lower red meat intake. Or maybe it will be supporting the legislative work to divert organic waste from reaching landfills. The fact of the matter is, as we start measuring methane with these new satellites that are coming online, we're finding that the real world emissions are much higher than we thought theoretically. And so therefore, the opportunities to track our reductions are really come to light. And so we are funding groups like government organizations to support governments in mitigating methane and developing new NDCs that include methane. But also we are working with NGOs to put the pressure on governments and oil companies so these leaks are lower. We are supporting policy, for example, in the European transition to understand that a fossil fuel war needs to be tackled with renewable energy. And we must learn now that we need to never be so vulnerable on fossil fuel production and use. And next time around, we need to have a decoupled food system and energy system that really doesn't depend on bullies like we've seen recently in Russia with the biggest fossil fuel producer in the world, right? So these are some of the things that we do. And as you can see now, I've also understood a long time ago that science is important, but this is also going to be a political discussion. And so we're also shaping that international dialogue with our partners in the Global Methane Pledge. Absolutely. And I would like to clarify also to our listeners that you are actually the CEO of the Global Methane Hub. Oh, yeah. And we have a programmatic team globally. We have regional offices in Africa. We're going to be working in Asia, India, China, of course. We have some staff in New Zealand and Uruguay and Copenhagen and LA. It's a global effort. We have around $220 million funding for the next three years, and it's one of the major regranters that we have in the world, and it's probably the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. That's fantastic. And 
as the CEO, you are mentioning that the hub is actually funded by philanthropic dollars. And that's a model that is very common public and private engagement in other parts of the world, like here in the U.S. where I'm based. So how do you see this connection between the public sector, government, and private companies trying to fund this effort? How do you see it working for the global South? There's ideological positions on the role of governments and public sector, but the reality is today around at least half of climate funding is private. And in some sectors, it's the majority, right? We need to have trillions be spent a year on climate action. And we're only at the billions, at the 600 billion scale today in the latest information. We really need to develop markets so we don't need to really bring in a lot of funding because the governments have other jobs to do. They need to be building roads and they need to be building homes and providing social services and health services, et cetera. And so therefore, if we're able to set up a way in which we're able to set up the policies, if we're able to set up the incentives so the food system actually starts looking into a system that's also compatible for the planet and for the people, then you know we really are making success and really scaling the funding that we require. Today, we're losing the war on climate finance. The way that we've been able to address this in a better way is when we bring in the private sector, which also provides uh, jobs and investment opportunities. Today, that renewable energy sector, the electromobility sector are very powerful contributors to the growth of countries and job creation. And I think if we don't have that in the way that we design, we're always going to be sad about the fact that we weren't able to deliver the budget that we wanted. Countries all have debt, all have a lot of demands, and we need to work with the private sector for these solutions to be implemented at the scale we require. We require, for example, a breakthrough in research on methane inhibitors, and it will be philanthropic dollars that will work with the private sector and the public sector to make this happen. We already have the success story of the Montreal Protocol, in which the private sector partnered with the public sector to really change out all these ozone-depleting compounds that were causing also climate change. And we have the Kigali Agreement, which is today the Clean Cooling Initiative, which also contributes to reducing other types of refrigerants and their impact on climate change. I think think we can do the same here. It's a little bit more complicated. The sectors we're talking about are food, our energy, our waste, but we can do it. We put together a team that wants to focus on this, are excited to be part of this, and we hope to be here for the long run. So you recently got named by Insider, which is a U.S.-based news outlet, as one of the 30 top global leaders working toward climate solutions in a new list that they just released this year for the very first time called Climate Action 30. How does it feel to see your name in a list of people that have so intentionally worked toward trying to address the climate crisis? I mean, obviously, it's an honor, and it's also great to be one of the only three people from the Global South, including current vice president of Colombia and also this activist in Brazil on indigenous rights. So I'm very happy to highlight that and showing that we actually have a lot to do. Many issues on climate action are focused on the global north. I think the global south has a lot to contribute. And I'm very happy that this story that I just told you has some recognition. When I was minister, we did a lot of things, more than probably many governments, and we got a lot of recognition for that, but that was very short spurt. And so therefore, this really allows us to empower our agenda to continue to do more. One accolade or another doesn't really matter. What matters is how this contributes to the agenda. And the agenda of methane action is one that we want to take forward with great success. 
obviously a remarkable career you've had, apparently also including as a DJ. And I want to close this interview on a colorful note. So is it true that you were a DJ in your past life or current life? Yeah, I mean, I, I love music. My cousin is a successful pop star in Chile called Javier Amena, and she lives in Spain now, and she's put out six, seven records. So this uh, sort of mathematical music angle is something that's been very close to me all my life. I played instruments, but I loved college radio. And when I had the chance to go to Iowa, where I got my PhD, even though I was modeling and doing all these complicated Wharf Chem models, etc., the soundtrack to that was actually reviewing hundreds of albums. I was music director to the radio station. I was a DJ there. I hosted dozens of interviews and conversations with different people from writers from the International Writers Workshop to pop stars and indie rock stars like the most well-known probably Wilco or just other bands like that so Yola Tengo and Kronos Quartet and many many others Low and Smog and Bill Callahan so I had a great time but it also helped me understand that these guys were also people so therefore I didn't have a lot of stage fright because of that I trained myself I used to have a stutter I still have somewhat of a stutter every once in a while when I get nervous but it allowed me to really tackle my fears and improve as a communicator and so therefore it was also good to shape the sound of the music in I Iowa City where I got my PhD. Every time I go back to Iowa City, I drop in and using the low security of these stations, drop in, put a couple of records down, and then get back to my old ways. I think it's really, really great. I love music and I also love diversity in music. And so therefore, even though I didn't like, for example, uh, let's say jam bands, I remember that the indie music snobs didn't want the jam band people to have a show and I let them have it and they loved it because I think there's all these cultures around music that we need to really allow to communicate, to have their space and diversity really needs to be about accepting our differences. And even, you know, in this case, even uh, allowing music that I don't like to be played on the station, I used to leave. Well, I hope you can at some point share a playlist with us about the music that has most inspired you throughout this amazing career you've had. Thank you so much, Marcelo, for being in the podcast with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrea. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Marcelo Mina, and our interviewer, Andrea Schneibel, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.